what have I even done? What is my guilt? These are the first words of David in 1 Samuel 20. And these are the words of how it got David to where he was. If David's life were a song up to this point, David's song of life would be one that was epic, full of trumpets, something that built up. Think of like almost a song uh, in the beginning of Star Wars, loud trumpets that comes there, and his story reflects it. The king of the day, Saul, takes a liking to David, and David has been loyal to Saul. David has defeated enemies. David plays music that heals the king and soothes him in his time. David has been married and he's collected 204. Well, I'm going to let you read that story. But David has accelerated in his life up to this point. But the music slowly starts to change. By this time in chapter 20, David has been said six times to have been loved. That David was lovable. Actually, for some reason, in a king's household, the three major players, that being the king, the king's daughter, and the king's son, all love David. And you can take that face value, but there's also a piece of it that makes you wonder, is David really crafty at being able to know how to be loved? People who are lovable know how to be more lovable. If you don't believe that, then I would recommend talking to a dog owner. They know exactly what they're doing. They know how to be loved. David is loved by everyone. But by the time you get to 1 Samuel 20, the story seems to change a little bit. The music that plays behind David's life starts to change ever so slightly because David is hitting the age time frame where he begins to learn that certain things are out of his control and those things that affect him that are outside of his control he can no longer navigate what his future looks like uh, the team that you saw up here this morning in worship we uh, we had a volunteer gathering uh, a couple of days ago and they had made me remember this story that I forgot. Um, it was a story that I had when I was 16 uh, that I felt this moment of losing control, that there's outside factors that you cannot determine and play. Uh, and they made me tell a story, and I, th I think it's a, a story that uh, still resonates with this. I was 16, and I had a driver's license, uh, and I was living free. And I knew that I had some freedom to enjoy. Uh, well, one night, I enjoyed that freedom a little too much. Uh, I was out a little bit late, not really late, just kind of late, you know, like 2 a.m. late. And I was, I was out, don't rush ahead of the story. Uh, I was out, and uh, I thought, you know, what's a responsible young adult, uh, not even a young adult of that age, what's a responsible, like, teenager do at 2 a.m. when you're going to a household that you know you will be in trouble with? I should text my parents and let them know that I'm coming. Because there's nothing better than anger that's anger that's been sat on for a little while. So I go ahead and I pull into this parking lot and I text them. What I didn't know was that the parking lot that I pulled into was also a business that had been robbed twice. And that this parking lot was under surveillance. Because they thought that someone was going to rob it again. 
So here I come just driving into the parking lot, trying to do my responsibility as just a human being, and I'm texting, and the next minute I know, my entire car is lit up. Before I know it, someone is escorting me from my vehicle in which I am in someone else's vehicle. And then as I'm being escorted, I remember saying, there has been a misunderstanding here. And the police officer stops and he goes, all right, so let me see what I don't understand. It's 2 a.m. There are no lights up whatsoever. You are sitting in a parking lot that someone has robbed this place twice. And you said you were texting your mom. Yep, you've got it. That's about it. (laughs) I would cuff him as well. (laughs) Sometimes we get wrapped in the stories that are outside of our control. Brene Brown has this beautiful line. She says, you never lose control. You just sometimes lose the perception that you even think that you're in control. Mm. David has walked into a story of a dysfunctional king in a dysfunctional kingdom. And now he's being wrapped into a story that is out of his control. Saul, the king who once loved David, now loathes David. Saul, the one who saw healing music in him, now hates him. Saul, the one who couldn't exist without David, now wishes he wouldn't exist at all. And I want to remind you that this wound is deep because when scripture reaches for who loves David first, it's not David's father. David's father actually forgets David entirely when he asks to bring all of his sons. The first person to love David is Saul. And now Saul can't even stand David. But not everyone responds this way. Because Saul also has a son, and that son's name is Jonathan. And Jonathan sees something in David. The chapters before we even get to chapter 20, he sees the leadership in David. He sees himself in David, and he is committed to seeing David flourish. But in chapter 20, as the music is changing, that is going to be brought to the floor. And now, King Saul, who has had multiple episodes towards David, David is wondering, has his time with Saul ended? And he's going to ask Jonathan to be able to help him figure that out. If you haven't had the chance in 1 Samuel 20 to go ahead and turn to there. Starting in verse 5. So David said, look, tomorrow's the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked me permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an animal sacrifice is being made for his whole clan. And if he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. And now David and Jonathan come up with this plan. Now, Jonathan is going to see and kind of test out the environment. You almost feel like this is two brothers trying to figure out, okay, which one of us is going to make sure that dad is either mad or not mad, and then I'm going to walk into the situation. And they come up with this plan that David is going to hide, and Jonathan is going to see Saul's reaction, and then he's going to come out in the evening and shoot three arrows. And depending on where the placement of the arrows go, that will determine what Saul's move towards David is. 
And once they agree on this, it picks up in the rest of the story. Starting in verse 24. So David hid in the field when the new moon feast came. And the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite of Jonathan. And Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Saul said nothing for that day, for he thought, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. And then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town. And my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me away to see my brothers. This is why he hasn't come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said, the son, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew, then he knew, that, John, that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on the second day of the feast, and he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Then he knew. A spear thrown at you will do that. Saul and David's relationship is coming to an end. But there's another relationship that has to be figured out here. Because it's not just about Saul and David, it's also about Jonathan and David. The relationship actually has gotten extremely complicated now. Because just to put it in these terms, Jonathan has to figure out which party is he actually going to vote for. And awkward, the party that he should vote for is his own father's party, political party, that is. On top of that, if Jonathan doesn't bring David to be killed, basically, he is putting himself in a place to start the campaign of David becoming king, in which Jonathan would actually be the king if David wasn't. And then, just to make matters just a little bit more complicated, every time a new king comes in, one of the things you do is you wipe out all of the descendants around that previous king. Because you don't want a single trace of anyone betraying the new kingdom that has been laid, i.e., that would be Jonathan's family and Jonathan's household. Jonathan, in this moment, must decide what he will do for David. He could say nothing and David could get killed. He could assure David nothing's going to happen and then bring David in. But what he does is something different. What he does is something that you and I would hope that someone would do for us in this position. Verse 35. 
In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boys ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all of this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapon to the boy and said, Go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and they wept together. But David wept the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other. In the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants, and between my descendants forever. And then David left, and Jonathan went back into the town. The music has stopped in David's life at this point. The healing music of God has now changed. David has lost everything. Jonathan has everything to lose. And Jonathan still tells David what he needs to know. And why? It's captured in the last verse, actually, if you'd go ahead and put that back up. Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other and in the Lord. That there's friendship in the midst of them. In the midst of Saul's exile, David will witness loyalty from Jonathan. This is a moment that's greater than even just thinking about what David experiences with Jonathan. Because if you back up entirely and think about it, David is experiencing the loyalty of God through Jonathan. And it's through friendship. It's through something they experience together. You know, depending on who you talk to, when you look at the David story, the David story actually does not have that many miracles that happen within it. Some would argue no miracles happen within the David story. And one of the reasons that makes that so beautiful is because God tends to work within the everyday experiences to work in the life of David in a way that everyone who reads it and hears it can experience. How many times have you experienced a friendship with someone that you could describe almost this this love that you can't fully explain, it's beyond itself, it may just be the love of God. That a friendship could be a window into experiencing what God is like for you and what God is like for the people. Jonathan vows to show this type of loyalty and this type of friendship. It embodies what God is all about. He even talks about the vow right before they get there. Uh, in verse 12, he says it like this. In of the day tomorrow, he's talking about what's about to happen. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send my word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed 
And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of the love for him because he loved him as himself. What David and Jonathan experience is a political and also personal term that would be used um, all the time when, when talking about an agreement between two people, a covenant. A covenant would be an act to will to love the person in which you are making this. To say no matter how the person who is receiving this responds, I will be faithful to what I say I'm going to do. And even if I have different feelings about the things that I agreed to within this covenant, I will still uphold this. And when David and Jonathan have this dialogue back and forth, there's a word that gets used there, and that word is called hesed. And hesed, it can sometimes be translated kind, sometimes steadfast, but in this text, what it's dripping with is loyalty. David, may you deal with me in a loyal way, as I am loyal to you. Jonathan leans into that loyalty, not because of the conditions, because the conditions are terrible. The conditions for breaking this would be very high. He doesn't lean into condition, he leans into covenant. Jonathan does not lean into the conditions of the situation. He leans into the covenant of the commitment he's already been made. Do you want to know the good news of loyalty? The good news of Hesed, the good news of 1 Samuel 20? That that word Hesed, that word loyalty is used in this text, but you want to know the main way it is used and described? It's used to describe God's relationship with God's people. Hesed is found all over the place of saying, this is what God's people and God are like together. That God does not look at conditions, but God looks at covenant. That God is loyal, not because of the conditions are set right, but because he has set a covenant and he is loyal to what he said coming out. Which is really good news. Which is really good news for maybe some of us who walked in today. And we don't see ourselves as being extremely loyal to God this week. This is extremely good news for those of us who feel like one chapter of our life is ending, maybe out of our own control, but knowing that God is loyal enough to start the next chapter with us. This is a great thing to know that even though we may have been loyal to different people in the world, loyal to job, loyal to things that we thought would be loyal to us, even when those things let us down, God is loyal to us. That loyalty will be consistent for God. And that's good news for the people of God to hear. It's available to everyone. So what do people do with a text like 1 Samuel 20? With a story about a king when, let's be honest, the closest most of you will get to a king is watching the Lion King this summer. What do you do with this? When Jesus comes, Jesus talks about a kingdom. 
As a matter of fact, that is why the story of David is so precious to Christians. Because the story of David actually shows about a loyal God that follows through. And even though David, which you will see in July, David is sometimes lying. Sometimes David can skirt out of situations. David can find a way to maneuver himself. David will take advantage of people. David sometimes will seem slightly sketchy. God uses his heart and his name to follow through on the promise that he's given his people. And that the Messiah that comes through David's name is the one who will talk about a kingdom that is still reigning. And when we talk about the kingdom, the nature of this kingdom is the word that we use with our vision a ton. That this kingdom is one of restoration. Which restoration just has this simple way of giving us perspective that God is not going and making all these new things. God's activity in the world is to take all of the things that are happening here and make them new. And we are people who are committed to that. That we believe that the music of God that happens through David is still playing today and it's playing out in new ways and beautiful ways and ways that we're ready to hear. You and I's role is to listen. Listen for the music of God. To be able to hear what's happening. Jonathan, Jonathan lives in such a way that he hears the background of God's music. And even when it's time to shift and show his loyalty to one way, he shifts his loyalty to what God is doing in the world. And because of that, David is able to experience the loyalty of God in and through that moment. The question that sets for you that as you walk out today is, because God has been loyal to you, are you loyal to the way that God's kingdom is working? Because listening to the music of God is what our lives are called to be. There's a narrative that goes on right now, um, and the narrative is basically this. Christianity, as far as the West is going, uh, is dying. The narrative goes that as far as the way that we see Christianity lived out here, at least in the States, at least in the ways that we've seen it before, is coming to an end. If I were to use the music language, it's being turned down and it is going to stop at some point. 1 Samuel 20 reminds us of the loyalty of God, that the music is not stopping with the kingdom of God. Church, it may just be changing And our role is to be able to listen and be able to identify the ways that the music of God may be changing. How's that look like? I think that looks a couple ways. For one, I think it means recognizing that God has not stopped working, but God may be working in different ways than how we saw God working when we grew up. That things may be changing. The music has not stopped, but it is still going. Which means, I think, We have to be able to identify that God is working in more than just people that look like you and I. That God is working in the people who are sometime on the outskirts, people who haven't been exposed before to what some of us have seen, people who may be a different gender, maybe a different race, people that God is working through, is making music through. Are we listening and looking for what God is doing in that place. I can tell you what it means for this church. For this church, this probably means for us, for those of us who have been in this church for more than just a couple years, and that's a lot of us. 
For those of us who are in this church for more than a couple years, we probably need to reevaluate what the fall looks like. And we need to start rubbing shoulders with some of the people who are being called to this church because of this vision. I have people ask me sometimes, why in the world did we create the pathway? If you're asking that question, that may be a need to be able to identify. There are people who come to this church that see the vision that God is delivering in us, and they don't know how to get on board with it. So we want to help create a way for people to be able to know how to take next steps with it. I would encourage you, if you've been in this church for a while, and you've been around the same circle of people, it may be time to reshift and maybe hear the new music of people that God is bringing right now and is making music out of their lives. And finally, for some of us, that may mean stepping out of fear. That may mean actually seeing what God is doing in the people around you, your spouse, your family, your kids, seeing what God is doing in them and pointing it out. And saying, I see this in you, I see what God is doing in you, and I want to be able to be a part of what God is doing in you. Let me finish with this. You ever gotten a song stuck in your head? You ever just had it where it's just humming? Have you ever heard the psychology behind why a song gets stuck in your head? A lot of people believe the reason it gets stuck is because the song feels unfinished that the reason the song keeps playing over and over again is because you haven't been able to actually connect the full line of the rhythm and the beats to be able to hear the full song. Church, if I were to put it for us this way, we are people who know that we are walking into a story that is unfinished. I don't need to give you examples of life, of ways that things feel undone and unfinished, but we are people that recognize that God's loyalty is in us and through us. That the promise of Jesus is a promise that God is loyal to seeing restoration come fully to an end, which means that you and I are people that remember that the song is not finished. We remember that God is finishing the song and that we are people that remind other people that God is still finishing the song. And church, here's the thing. If you and I listen If we listen to what God is doing in people around us and the people that may surprise us, God's going to create some music maybe out of us as well. Let's sing.